gents and gender-fluid friends. It's time again for Healthcare is Hilarious. Yes, it's me, Casey Quinlan, the mighty mouth of Mighty Casey Media, here with another one of our weekly rants about the ridiculosity of the U.S. healthcare system. Now, this week, we've got Danny Van Leeuwen, Mr. Health Hats himself. We met up at the Patient-Centered Clinical Decision Support Learning Network annual meeting, mouthful, but it's healthcare, and healthcare does love long and complicated, where Danny spoke about the patient perspective on pain management and life in general for folks dealing with chronic conditions. Here's our conversation. I finally get the main sponsor of Healthcare is Hilarious on the podcast. How cool is that? Both of you had to come from Boston, and I had to come up from, from Richmond, but That's here great. we are in D.C., Yeah. And you gave what I called on Twitter an epistle to the barbarians uh, here at the patient-centered clinical decision support meeting, which is actually, I mean, these, these to be fair, these folks really do give a fat rats, a big fat rats about they making do. this better. They do. But again, because the, the industry side often seems to get the cart before the horse, but you used a phrase while, while you were talking called pathological optimism. That's a much nicer way of saying what I have said for years in that um, I have for my lifetime been someone who always approached a pile of horse shit and just started digging saying, I know there's a pony in here somewhere. Yeah. And that's just, that's, that's been my, you know, sort of my, my operating model. But so tell me about your pathological well, optimism. Well, I think that um, to me, um, I'm really fortunate. And I think I was born this way. And I get this honestly from my parents. And my parents were um, both Holocaust survivors. And um, one of the things that I see a lot in the chronically ill community is a lot of depression. And I know that with my MS that, you know, I have variation in mood just like everybody else. My, my norm is higher up. But I do know that when I'm relatively low to me, which is usually um, a tragedy has happened or I just had chemo or, you know, steroids, that um, I'm less well or I have the flu, that my symptoms are much worse. And so I've learned that I have to work at maintaining that pathological optimism. And as a counselor once said to me uh, when I was dealing with grief from my son being sick and then dying, is there's stress you can manage and there's stress that you can't. Grief is a stress you can't manage. There it is. But what you can do is manage the stress you can. And that way you have more, uh, you're likely to be able to better maintain that pathological optimism. Well, I feel like I, I have to work at that, you know, and it's whether it's dealing with stuff in my life, the job, my relationships, um, my health, that I have to be proactive and um, manage those stresses so that I am, on average, more pathologically optimistic. optimistic. <laughs> then, so that's how I, and I'm fortunate, you know, I feel like it's sort of like being a white man in America. I was oh, born way, this way. Spoiler alert, Danny is a white man. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm not dealing with that I'm a black woman with sickle cell who people think I'm a drug seeking person. I don't have to deal with that. I'm really fortunate. 
I know. Well, you know, you can get to the, you know, finding that attitude of gratitude about the most ridiculous things, which, I mean, you, you know, your situation is vastly different than mine. But, I, you know, I, I feel you on the grief side because having been through that myself a couple times, that's, that's the biggest challenge to those of us who are either, you know, optimistic or um, so ferociously in your face fighting for the rights of all, you know, I mean, I kind of go one way or the other. It's not so much that I'm optimistic. It's more like, I'm just going to blow this shit up until you people get it right. Well, the thing that, in a way, that I have found it to be really valuable is with my neurologist and my primary care physician. I feel like I say I want to maintain my pathological optimism, and they pat me on the head, and they think it's really great. And they think I have such a great attitude. But they, what they do do is they think about what they're recommending for me. For example, when I had kidney stones, it was like, here's the range of things we can try. This is likely to mess with your pathological optimism. Do you want to try that instead? You know what I mean? I feel like they're my partners in trying to not yeah. mess with it. And, and that's great. So that, this is, you know, that the, the concept of precision medicine, which is a big hot topic now. It's almost it is totally a buzz phrase. But the best way to get at precision medicine is to have the patient, the person, and their clinical team, whoever that is, work together on their specific issues. Whatever that is. I mean, precision medicine works for healthy people too. It's yeah. not just about cancer genomics or right. genomics in some well, other area. Here's another example of that, is that, so I play baritone saxophone, and my neurologist says it's the best possible thing that I can do for myself. I would have um, intercostal muscle involvement with my MS, but I play this big horn that takes a lot of air, so I deal with that. It's a big horn, and I would have issues with my dexterity, but I'm playing this big horn. And so he says... You know, I got nothing to compare to that. So he asked me, have you fallen, and are you still playing the saxophone? And if I say to him that I'm thinking about stopping the saxophone, he'll, like, say, wait a minute. And he thinks that's more important than my compliance with gabapentin, that I'm playing the, the saxophone. You know, and so I appreciate that about him, that we can think in those personal goals and he thinks about what it does for me medically, and I think about what it does for me spiritually. We're, and it's really hard to separate the two, don't you find? Is, yes. Don't you find? You <laughs> yeah. know, the body and the mind, it's really hard to kind of, you know, unless you take the person's brain out, yeah. you know, a la Abby Normal in, what was that, Young Frankenstein. And then that's an outcome nobody wants, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of the questions that got asked, because, yeah. you know, we chatted before you spoke, and you were wondering if they were going to get it. And yeah. the first question that someone asked said that, um, you know, this is the patient-centered cl clinical decision support meeting full of a bunch of informaticists and, you know, other nerds and, you know, doctors, et cetera, nurses, et cetera. The questioner said that patient-centered, maybe not so much more patient-specific, is what everyone right. has been talking about here. Right. So what's your take on that? Um, well, I appreciated that. Because when I'm not feeling pathologically optimistic and I'm down, I'll think, this isn't patient-centered. Give me a break. It's not even remotely patient-centered. I don't feel that most of the time. But, but I, I appreciate that it's patient-specific. Because that marriage of patient, what's important to me, so my personal health information and data and goals and whatever, 
how is it that we marry that with evidence? You know, and that's why I do the work I do with P. Corey. So I appreciated, I felt like she was very realistic. Like, that was good. That was good. So if if you were to come up with one takeaway that you would like this audience of, you know, informatics professionals, health services researchers, people involved in building the data systems that make healthcare better, supposedly... If you were going to have one takeaway, just one thing that you wanted them to take away from your talk, what would that be? We have to figure out how health information that's collected about me is information about me. And that, so that that's in the pool of decisions. And not only that, I think it's, I take that a step further and say, we need to use that information for continual learning so that if the evidence says I should try A and the doctor decides to recommend A and I either choose A or I don't choose A, and then what happened after that? That is in the record. And then it gets pooled with population data so that the science can continue to grow based on real life experience. But you gotta have that patient level data to yeah, the, do that. The patient the and the patient interaction with their own data. Yeah. And the ability to go in and add data right. ad hoc yes. and you know like outside of the clinic. Yeah. Because what the eleven percent figure? You said yeah. you know eleven percent of medical care is actually delivered with a clinician in the room. Yeah, everything else is up to us, yeah. the patients. Yeah, and I mean legit. Yeah, that's that's legit. We should care about ourselves enough to take part. Yeah, but there's so much that we know and we experience that influences what the treatment decisions yes. could be. Yeah, and this clinical decision support could require. Yes, that you know it just seems like there's this giant data lake out there that nobody's tapping into. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that would be it. So what's what's on deck for you? What it, you know? What's the thing that's firing you up the most right now on the giggity side? Well, I have a new gig with some cannabis researchers. That's really an interesting area because I feel like while my understanding with my neurologist and the treatment of MS is that it's an experiment of me, that's how we deal with it. It's still constrained by, you know, this problem of evidence versus individual. And I feel like the cannabis world is kind of the Wild West. So it's sort of a hoot to be involved in, you know, how can cannabis research be more valuable to medical users? So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Stay tuned for <laughs> updates. And now it's time for this week's rant. Uh, this week, the current administration announced, with much ballyhoo, a proposed rule to add price information to those endless Ask Your Doctor About Pharma ads that you see on every television show, on every network, all the live-long day, every day of your life. 
Now, you know the ones. They have a lawyer's chorus fast-talking a script, saying something like may cause death or seizures and, in some cases, anal bleeding. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who used to be the head of pharma giant Eli Lilly, announced this with lots of fanfare this past Monday at the National Academy of Medicine in D.C. Now, the whining from the industry side was predictable. Pharma head Stephen Ubel said that this would be confusing and misleading for patients and threw in the idea that the rule violated pharma's First Amendment rights. Now, what pharma proposes is to send people to websites where they'd be able to find out the prices on the drug that they just saw advertised. But what neither Health and Human Services or industry is admitting is that drug prices are just another example of the chaos behind a veil of secrecy that is American healthcare pricing. In the car game, it's your mileage may vary on mileage stats listed on the stickers on car windows on dealer lots. In healthcare, your mileage and your price and possibly your life expectancy will most definitely vary depending on your insurance coverage, what pharmacy you use, if your health plan uses a pharmacy benefits manager to manage prescription drugs, or whether it's Tuesday. Now here's the really hilarious part, though. This rule has no teeth. There's no enforcement mechanism for it. The most that will happen is that Health and Human Services will maintain a naughty list of pharma companies that run ads without pricing information. Wow, that'll get their attention, right? The current administration has zero interest in actually lowering drug prices or health care costs in general. Their only metric of success is how much airtime the fearless leader gets in a 24-hour period. If the fearless leader dominates the news cycle, they chalk it up in the win column. If you look back across the last two years, they've been doing a lot of winning. For the rest of us, the jury is still out. So don't forget to vote on November 6th. End of public service announcement. America, it's a vulnerable country. Just don't get sick. Healthcare is Hilarious is brought to you by Danny Van Leeuwen, also known as Health Hats. With his diverse and prolific health experience, Danny uses his multiple hats to empower people as they travel toward their best health. To join Danny on that best health journey, visit his blog. The Society for Participatory Medicine, a not-for-profit membership organization devoted to the concept of participatory medicine where empowered patients engage as drivers of their health and where providers encourage and collaborate with them as full partners in their care. SPM stimulates dialogue, influences policy, advocates for research, and educates patients, healthcare professionals, and others. Our members include stakeholders from across the healthcare continuum. Beyond the Room at Cochrane for All broadcast session insights live via Twitter and captured podcast interviews with keynote speakers and attendees to take the ongoing quest for science and evidence and medical treatment beyond the room and across the globe. <laughs>